Today's program is brought to you in part by Manzanita Papers, a literary subscription box dedicated to incredible books that have flown under the radar. Each month, a different writer selects a book they cherish and writes a personalized introduction about why you might too. With each month's book, subscribers receive this personalized introduction to it, as well as custom artwork based on the book itself in the form of postcards and bookmarks. So far this year, readers have been treated to Walking on Cowrie Shells by Nana Nkweti, Revenge by Yoko Ogawa, Silk Poems by Jen Bourbon, and Labrador by Katherine Davis, with personal introductions by writing luminaries such as Karen Russell, Kate Bernheimer, and Ander Monson, writing about the books they love, books that deserve more love that they want to share with you. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to be surprised and delighted by some great book mail each month, find Manzanita Papers on Instagram or visit manzanitapapers.com to subscribe now. Today's episode is also brought to you by Courtney Mom's The Year of the Horses, which Danny Shapiro calls Searing, Lucid, Tender, and Wise. The memoir tells the story of Mom's return to horseback riding after many years away, charting how she finds her way back to herself, not only as a rider, but as a mother, wife, daughter, writer, and woman alternating timelines and braided with historical portraits of women and horses alongside history's attempts to tame both parties. The Year of the Horses is an inspiring love letter to the power of animals and humans to heal the mind and the heart, says Lisa Tadeo. Gorgeously written, wry but loving, heartbreaking, and most of all roving, the Year of the Horses is a memoir of power and beauty and pain that moves across the world like the beautiful horses that carry it. The Year of the Horses is out on May 3rd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today I'm excited to welcome Christina Rivera Garza back to the show for her new and selected short fiction with Dorothy Project as the second half of the Dorothy Project double header following the conversation with Karen Balin's Revenge of the Scapegoat, the other book Dorothy released this spring. Christina's work holds a special place in my heart. I love that she writes across all genres, poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, and that within each, she works against what defines them as such. But also the range of her register from fantastical, uncanny fiction to scholarly work deeply philosophic and intellectual work that feels somehow still in conversation with the mysteries of her fiction. So one particular treat of this new and selected is that it's an opportunity to step back and look at the evolutions. And in Christina's case, we could say also mutations and re-envisionings of a writer's work over three decades, and then step forward at various points and see if what we see in one era or another looks different now. Christina publishes with a wide variety of presses, but the last time she was on the show, coincidentally, it was also with a book of hers from Dorothy, The Tiger Syndrome, which perhaps is a sign, since Dorothy puts out two books a year, both by women, a 
I'm somehow both of these books are improbably episodes back to back this spring. As I mentioned in my intro to Karen Balin, as part of this Dorothy celebration, they sent me a copy of each of their entire back catalog to date, all 22 books, to divide into various bundles to offer to you, the listener, who hasn't quite yet become a listener supporter. Karen describes Dorothy as the great defender of the sentence, and I do think that this is one really true way to frame the writers they publish, and that so many of us love. Women writers with a distinctive style and voice and syntax one to the next. Language-forward books, which I had the pleasure of grouping into these bundles. From a surrealistic-themed bundle with Christina's Tiger Syndrome, The Complete Stories of Leonora Carrington, and Sabrina Ora Mark's Wild Milk, to the largest bundle of seven remarkable stylists, including Amina Kane, Azarine van der Lumi, to Nell Zink and Jen George. Last time Christina was on the show, she read three sections of her long poem, Third World for the Bonus Audio Archive. And that's definitely worth seeking out. This time the bonus audio is a long-form conversation with her longtime translator, Sarah Booker. This is a particularly great compliment to the conversation with Christina, a conversation that is very much engaged with questions of authorship and identity, of relationality and translation. And with Sarah, we talk about the horizontal feminist ethics they operate under when they work together, among many other things. To check out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, and all the other potential benefits of joining the Between the Covers community, including this largesse of Dorothy Project books, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, for today's conversation with Christina Rivera Garza. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. Stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, one of the most important contemporary Mexican writers, the only writer to win the Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Prize twice, is novelist, short story writer, essayist, poet, editor, and translator Cristina Rivera Garza. Rivera Garza has lived and studied in both Mexico and the United States, receiving degrees in Latin American history. She's also been a professor in both Mexico and the United States of history, literature, and creative writing. 
and her work, much like her own life and the life of her migrant ancestors, is writing that is concerned with, interrogates, and crosses borders, whether the borders between English and Spanish or the United States and Mexico, and those between writer and translator, or the borders between the human and the non-human, the forest and the city, or with regards to questions of gender, indigeneity, femicide, and ecocide, as well as writing that troubles existential borders of selfhood and authorship, of the notion of the independent and singular self-bounded border of identity. These questions animate her work in all three genres, and in that spirit, she's also the founder of the first Spanish-language PhD program in creative writing within the United States at the University of Houston. When Christina first appeared on the show in 2019 to talk about two of her works of fiction recently translated into English, The Tiger Syndrome and The Iliac Crest, I remember that there was a wealth of nonfiction books by her that had yet to be translated. And it's truly remarkable what has happened in the three years since we talked, both in what has been carried across into English since and what she has written in Spanish during that time. To do justice to her accomplishments would require us to dispense with the interview entirely, so I will instead mention what has happened since we last talked. Since we last talked, she has published in English three books of nonfiction, the essay collection The Restless Dead, Necro Writing and Disappropriation, translated by Robin Myers, the scholarly work La Castañeda Insane Asylum, Narratives of Pain in Modern Mexico, translated by Laura Canost, and the hybrid work of essays, journalism, and poetry, Grieving, Dispatches from a Wounded Country, translated by Sarah Booker, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Several books have also been published in Spanish. In 2020, she published Autobiografía de Algodón, Autobiography of Cotton, and in 2021, El Invencible Verano de Liliana, about her sister, the victim of a femicide 30 years ago, whose perpetrator was never brought to justice, winner of the Premio Iberoamericano de Letras, Jose Donoso, and she has also published Lo Roto Precede a Lo Entero, 125 Infraensayos inspired by Georges Perec's posthumous book, Infraordinario. As if that were not enough, she also became, or was finally recognized, as a genius receiving the quote-unquote genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation in 2020. Christina Rivera Garza returns to Between the Covers today to talk about her latest book in English, her new and selected stories from Dorothy Project, Stories that span her career, showing how she has changed and transformed as a writer over time, including stories that have not yet been translated into Spanish. The stories that have been translated into English from Spanish were translated by Sarah Booker, as well as by Lisa Dillman, Francisca Gonzalez, Arias, Alex Ross, and the author herself. Terry Hong for self-awareness says of Christina's latest book, Rivera Garza's presentations invite continued interpretations and interrogations. Transparent understanding, definitive endings, convincing closure won't be found here. What Rivera Garza offers is invention, challenge, linguistic acrobatics, and more than occasional embrace of the impenetrable. Kirkus and its Star Review adds, 
The stories in this collection, tales from the most surreal of Shadowlands, are as varied as Rivera Garza's remarkable career. And this book is an excellent introduction to a unique writer who deserves to be recognized not just in Mexico, but all over the world. Finally, Publishers Weekly in its starred review says, This hypnotic, riveting collection of new and previously published stories from MacArthur Fellow Rivera Garza takes on love, migration, and violence. The author successfully deploys a range of styles and forms, influenced by prose poetry, fables, and postmodern experiments. Throughout, she documents the ravages of the real world while establishing a refuge in literature. These unsettling yet deeply approachable stories ought to earn Rivera Garza the wider attention she deserves. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Christina Rivera Garza. Hi, David. Thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to be back here. So I want to start with three meta questions about the arrival of the book before we get to the actual stories within the book. The first question I have is in the spirit of the introduction about your relationship to borders particularly with regards to the notion of the individual or the individual bordered self, because it feels like you take a similar approach to the self as you do to the notion of a book as an object. Whereas I think most people see the publication of a book as the arrival of something in its final form, a form that has clear borders meant to endure as such. It seems to me that every time one of your books comes out in translation, you see it as an opportunity to reimagine it, break it down, build it up again. For instance, um, your book Grieving is one you've characterized as mutating over time, um, not only that it had different versions in Spanish, but that its arrival in English was not only an opportunity to add more, but to go back in and change what was already there. Um, your book La Castañeda, by contrast, started as a dissertation in English, and then you translated it into a less academic Spanish and published it like that, and then it gets translated back into English. Um, and here again with new and selected stories, not only have you written stories for this collection which are appearing for the first time, and the first time they're appearing, they're appearing in English, You've also re-entered your Spanish language stories and revised some of them. You've even revised some of the translations, becoming a translator in a sense. Uh, so, so talk to us about this phenomenon for you of how and how it relates to your notion of the book as a book. Um, and then maybe you can just talk a little bit also about the process of um, taking something apart that's already found its form and then creating a new form. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. This is a really good question. I think if I have been learning something about translation and translation has become a central feature of all I do is, uh, is its capacity to unfinish, but always apparently complete and finished. And so I've seen that um, as an opportunity, in fact. So um, as, as my works have been uh, traveling from Spanish into English specifically because they've been translated into languages that I'm not proficient on. And obviously I don't go through, through all these um, major work in, in languages like French or, or I don't know, Italian. But um, I'm very conscious about 
English to begin with because I live in the United States. I've, I've been in this country for such a long time. And I've developed a very close relationship with wonderful translators, with Sarah Booker, who's been a, a sidekick now in, in several uh, major projects, with Robin Myers, who is also a poet, uh, with um, um, recently with Shayla Samuelson, uh, and um, you just mentioned the name of the translator of uh, La Castañeda, Laura. Uh, so um, let me see. I, I believe that all work is work in progress. And that uh, when we write the word, the end, at the end of, of these projects, it's, it's, it's fiction. It's just a, a way of pausing time, giving us some kind of respite, a time to rearrange things, to go over ideas. But uh, certainly the fact that, that I've been having to, to go back to these texts, uh, I would have never done this if I had remained only working in Spanish, of course. I had no reason to go back to reread my own work. That's something that I, I, I actually don't, uh, I'm not actively uh, looking forward, right? But, um, but the work of the translation has required such a intimate, detailed conversation with the, with the translations as such, and has given me this opportunity of um, um, revising the work, of uh, following, um, threads that uh, I had left just by themselves in, in previous attempts, right? So uh, it's been, a, in, in fact, a, a, a rewriting process. Uh, I've been able to find new pathways in, uh, in some of these texts. Uh, there were things that I didn't even remember when, when I went back, the first time that I read some of these, especially the longer novels or the longer essays. And so um, in, in that sense, it, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a privilege. When I was um, uh, living in Mexico and I started to publish some of my books in Mexico, I always ha harbored this idea. Um, I wanted to change the titles, for example, of my books. And I actually ran this idea by my editors in Mexico. And they said, um, we don't think that might work because people attach, you know, meanings to these titles. Uh, and um, then I was thinking the books change over time. I mean, that's, that's the issue. They are apparently uh, done. They, are, they have acquired a specific and stable identity, apparently only. And uh, every time that these books go through borders, face new readerships, new audiences, they, they are able, if we're lucky, they are able to, to, to say new things. And um, so in, in, as I start working with my translators, we've been very aware of this um, traveling, of this going back to the places where many of these works were first conceived. So uh, it's been a very strange translation, retro-translation, untranslation in a way. And I take that to be a, a creative process as well. So we are creating, I am creating with, uh, with the, the collaboration, very intimate collaboration of the translations, new works. And, uh, and in that sense, I, I'm, I'm also very aware of the fact that this is a collaborative effort that uh, what appeared in Spanish some years ago, 10, 20 years ago, is, a, is one book. And what we're creating right now with um, surrounded by English, thinking about an English speaking audience as well, 
it's, it's, a, it's a new book and it's a new collaborative work. Um, all writing to me in my view is collaborative work, is, is work made in, in a plural. And in that sense, um, it's very hard for me to conceive that border, that um, isolated self that, that you mentioned at the beginning. And uh, I think translation is, is um, it, it just makes that process so visible. The fact that we're always in dialogue with others when, when we are writing. Well, my, my second meta question is, is around something that you say in the introduction, which is that the process of revisiting and revising these old stories, which, which you've already intimated, was this. It was an uncomfortable journey. Um, and I couldn't help but notice that only two stories from your first story collection are in the selected, and only three from your second collection are included here, which made me curious about your encounter with your earliest writer self, um, what you discovered about those earliest stories, especially, I guess, about maybe the ones that aren't there. Um, but I know a lot of the listeners are writers or art makers. And I, I'm sure people would be interested in hearing what things you saw in your own early writing that you now feel differently about or wouldn't do, or what things you learned about yourself by looking at the, that early work. Um, if I'm re maybe even reading too much into that, but also maybe the, the continuities you were surprised to discover from your first stories to now, um, or even just what was uncomfortable about that journey of, yeah. of, of re-entering um, work that spans 30 years. It was certainly an uncomfortable experience. Um, it's it's it, these are many years and many years of continuous work too. Uh, there were, as you said, some continuities, and I was not entirely surprised by them. And uh, and there were issues that I now recognize as uh, approaches that that in my present view were failing, but but that I see also as, as, um, as, uh, as learning, learning processes uh, as, as always is the case, right? So there is um, a very deep concern about issues um, dealing with, with bodies and genders and uh, with danger, uh, with, um, with a sense of seeping violence that is not necessarily visible or identifiable, but somewhat um, um, uh, permeating is, is permeating the, the whole scene, the whole interact, the interactions among characters. So it seems to me that even though when I began writing, we were not explicitly talking about, for example, the so-called war on drugs, or what we now uh, know as the, the war on women. Uh, I was, in a way, collecting, paying attention to uh, zines that were enigmatic enough, uh, hard to understand, uh, hard to explain, uh, or that I was, I was struggling not to normalize them, right? So it, there is this intention. I can recognize now, looking from the present into the past, that intention of collecting these different scenes that somehow made the world a menacing place, a place that I was not able to normalize, to fully understand, and that therefore 
I, I had to pay attention, to very close attention, which to me is a good definition of what writing does, right? It helps us to pay very close attention to issues specifically, at least in my case, that I don't fully comprehend and that therefore remain, uh, they come back again and again, uh, nagging me, asking me for some sort of, uh, if not understanding, at least approach, some sort of connection, right? And um, I, I was a voracious reader when I was young, uh, as, as I guess most all writers are. I was trying to, I was playing with form. I was, um, you know, in a way, dancing, right? Trying to, to find uh, the specific tempo and tone and pitch and sound for all these stories that I wanted to share. Um, the, the first book is very realist in, in, in my approach to this, the storytelling. Uh, even though there are moments in which um, uh, what we might term as the fantastic uh, takes place within the story, these were very gritty city-based stories, uh, mostly related to Mexico City in the late 20th century. And I, I think that, that the evolution that at least became uh, clearer uh, in my mind when I was reading all these materials is this um, slow, but um, yeah, this, this uh, way of uh, uh, exploring form uh, uh, different types of genres. And specifically, I was very seduced by the opportunities of, of the detective story on the one hand, of uh, the possibilities of, of the fantastic as such. Um, and I see that becoming more and more prominent as, as the stories uh, reach our, our present. So the, the concerns, I think, are, are more or less stable. Bodies are always there. What do we do with our bodies? How do we relate to each other? How gender and class and race play a role in, in complicating those relationships? And what do we do or what do I do as a writer in order to to remain on my toes, to be alert at the, uh, at the how danger is lurking uh, through these relationships, not only between humans, but, but also between humans and non-humans uh, uh, characters in these stories. I think I'm, I'm, that's something that, that has been there as a, as a, as a constant concern throughout um, the, the stories. And, and of course, I mean, I was a, I was a young writer when I, I recently this year, we released um, uh, a new version in Spanish, a new version of, uh, of my first uh, short story collection. It was uh, the, the original title was uh, La Guerra No Importa, or Doesn't Matter. And now we released it uh, last year uh, with a new title, now finally, you know, my dream about changing titles came through. Uh, and it's now uh, called Andamos Perras, Andamos Diablas. We, we go like she devils, we low like bitches, which I thought was more uh, in tune with not only the stories, but also the, the moment that we're living right now. And um, something that I mentioned there in the, in the preface that I wrote is that um, I can see that very young writer uh, dealing the best she could 
with issues of, of form and content and that, that dance between the two and trying to find each other and, and create something that is shareable. Um, and, I, and I see the writer failing quite often and, and failing big and failing again. But the good thing is that uh, that writer is trying and, and, and is trying again and again. So there is this curiosity, there is alertness about form and what form can, can do. But on the other hand, and, and I was, that was to see that was, was very uncomfortable, right? I mean, because I, I had to, I was revising the, the pieces, but I didn't want to polish them unnecessarily. I mean, I, I wanted them to, to keep that, that greatness. It was a first book and, uh, and I wanted it to remain a first book. So I, 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 I didn't want to interfere. I didn't want to invade the book. I, I just wanted to, to reread it, to, to make it, more um, approachable, you know, but um, but I didn't want to drastically transform them. I, I didn't want that book to be the book of the writer that I am now. I wanted, um, it, it was important for me at that point that um, something that I saw in that very young writer, that, that there was an energy that I now envy, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, a way of uh, just, uh, there is this, I don't know how, it's vigor. There is, um, uh, yeah, this like someone who is not actually paying much attention about uh, decorum and how things should be done. And it's someone just who, who is exploring and, uh, and doing that as freely as, as, as we can at times. So I was not that aware as, as I, I have become over the years about you know the state of the of of, um, of a literary moment and uh, and the rules of our trade and the the um, uh, issues of convention uh, all like those kinds of things that we that I like to interrogate and and I try to do very consciously now I think I was uh, when I was reading this this work this early work what I see someone doing it. Uh, with great energy and and uh, with no respect at all. I mean, it's, I don't know if that is a word that I'm looking for. I like that juxtaposition of the things that you are uncomfortable with, but also the things that you envy. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the, we we only write a first book. We we write a first book only once, and uh, and uh, and and that's such a privilege. It's a state of grace in many sense. So there is there are no expectations. Uh, uh, for us, you know, from readers, but even uh, I myself had no expectations. There, there was this need, and it was, it was a wild, forceful need to be there, to have these um, these comings and goings with language, and there was an experience that not needed to be a, a put into words in that specific way, and so that is strength and. Um, uh, that, that's something that, that uh, yeah, that, that I, I look back at and I say, well, yeah, I want that back. I want more of that in my own work even now. No. Well, well, let me ask you my third and last um, meta question, which is about fiction and non versus nonfiction. Because when we talked in 2019, even though your novels, The Iliac Crest and Tiger Syndrome, had both just come out in English, for the most part, you had been focusing on nonfiction in your own writing for many years. So you were revisiting at that point work that you had written 
a while ago in Spanish. Um, and you, would, you alluded to a dissatisfaction with fiction for you as an adequate vehicle for what you were aspiring toward when we talked. And since 2019, both the books you've written in Spanish and the ones that have arrived in English have overwhelmingly been nonfiction too. So it's, it's perhaps improbable that we find ourselves again talking about your fiction, given how much of your work is nonfiction. But I wondered if you could speak to your relationship to fiction now, three years later, both generally speaking, but also with regards to two rare nods to fiction in the last couple of years for you. For instance, you've referred to your ostensibly non-fictional book, Autobiography of Cotton, as a novel, and you've also written new fictions for this, new and selected. So tell us where you're at about the limitations or the opportunities of fiction for you and where you stand today in relationship to the imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I've developed a complicated relationship with fiction over the years, and it's a love-hate relationship. I, um, I taught an intro to fiction for many years at UCSD, and I remember I used to, uh, to tell my students in our first class, I, I used to ask them, why should we study fiction? And, and they all thought that it was a rhetorical question, you know, the kind of question that a professor would, would pose to the class looking for you know, support for fiction as such. And so I was always taken aback when they were just so smart and they offer all these possibilities. And, and at one point I was like, yeah, they, they must be right. You know? There might be something that fiction does in that sense. You know, the usual, the empathy, the, the, the possibility of fiction to create empathy, um, uh, to put oneself, to put uh, oneself on, on someone else's shoes, uh, the imagination, etc. But I have to be honest about the, I, I quoted what uh, uh, Norwegian author uh, Nausgaard has said about fiction uh, as lacking any kind of power in a world in which pretty much everything is fiction. I think uh, he said it uh, quite, uh, quite right. Uh, right there, that's, that's my major qualm about fiction right now. So what can fiction do in a world in which uh, Pretty much everything is fiction, right? Is there any uh, um, power in the sense of providing us with critical tools to to look into the world and with critical tools to to change our lives, right? So, um, so I started to move away from fiction, and uh, um, I've been I was at a, a certain point during the early 21st century, I was thinking very hard about issues of appropriation and issues of research related to, to the writing of fiction. Um, I, as many others, was interrogating the role of the author and the kind of license that fiction authors often give themselves in order to deal with issues that require um, much ethical and aesthetic care, right? So all that became um, um, a matter of, of, uh, of much thought and concern. And therefore my relationship with fiction um, became, as I said, complicated. 
But I have to admit that even in works, my three last uh, books that have yet to be translated into English, Había Mucha Neblina o Humo No Se Que, which is uh, essentially my relationship with um, a major Mexican author, Juan Rulfo, and um, in a chronicle, uh, a range of chronicles about um, my uh, following of his steps in, in some Mexican territories. And then when you mentioned the autobiography of Cotton, which is an exploration of the migrant experience of my maternal and paternal grandparents too. So, um, and, and obviously the, the most recent, uh, the uh, Liliana's Invincible, Invincible Summer, which will be out um, by Hogarth Press in 2023. But the three books um, shared certain method or methodology, if you want to call it that way, it's an emphasis on research uh, as a way, as a mode of care, as a way of, uh, uh, of um, you know, caring for the materials and the topics that I'm trying to explore or, or become close to. And the point here was that even though I was, I was paying attention to, um, to the different modes of nonfiction, in order to tell these stories, I had to rely on fiction. So in, in um, I call autobiography of, of Cotton a novel because uh, even though it's written in, um, in different genres, I thought that the, the genre that became the host of all of them was in fact fiction. So in order to fill out the gaps, in order to create the linkage that goes from beginning to end of the book, that is something that fiction, the, the embrace, the total embrace of the book is something that fiction allowed. Um, whereas in, uh, in El Invencible Verano de Liliana or in the, in the previous book, I think nonfiction played that role. So it's a matter of degree, I suppose. Um, I'm not in an either or uh, position right now. I am less belligerent than I was some five years ago uh, with fiction. I found myself not too long ago at the end of last year writing. Um, uh, uh, I wrote uh, a lot of pages of, of something that might become a speculative novel uh, and it's totally fiction. And I was absolutely uh, startled by, uh, you know, going back to, to a genre that allows much freedom, but but uh, but that also obviously has very strict rules. So um, I'm experimenting. I don't think that I can unfiction myself. I don't think I'm going to go back to fiction as I used to practice fiction. I think it's going to be a different take, and it's going to be informed by by all these questions and interrogations that I've been posing to my own work and my readings. Uh, but there is something, of course, there that is uh, that is. Um, um, very um, mercurial and full of possibility as well. And I'm, I'm again intrigued by that, by that possibility. Well, in the intro to your book, La Castaneda, about the narratives of pain in a, in a insane asylum in Mexico, you say that we are in the presence of a conjoined twin brother separated at birth from its opposite twin sister that your novel, Nadie Me Vera Llorar, and this non-fictional book where we're reading the introduction are conjoined twins. And that whether or not they, they recognize one another, they both need each other. And, and that is one thing that I, I really love about your work. 
it's the porousness between all of it, the ways the questions and the themes in your, your fiction, your nonfiction and your poetry, um, they all seem to immigrate or, and or emigrate from one to the next. Um, perhaps even inviting the reader to find connections, um, or make connections. And, and in that spirit, I wanted to propose a connection and, and see how it feels to you. Um, Many of your fictional protagonists in your stories and novels are meaning makers, detectives, journalists, translators, ethnographers, and they by nature are seeking to construct meaning, to uncover a truth, to put things into language, but it feels like that the world of your stories often is working against the success of this. Um, in the Tiger Syndrome, so much of the vital communication is mediated through a translator into a language that is nobody's first language. Um, in the Iliac Crest, there's an invented language of the two women guests that excludes the host from understanding. And in your new and selected, we see that too, the breakdown of language, miscommunication or fragmented communication. And in speaking about your debut 1991 collection, La Guerra No Importa, you, you say the term unknowing, which is also the name of one of the stories in it, is the best term to describe the intimate operation at the heart of the stories of your first book, and also that unknowing was what you thought writing was for. And when I'm thinking of all of this, and I'm returning to this notion of, of conjoined twins across genres, um, I listened to a recent talk you gave. and You were talking about writing your book, El Invencible Verano de Liliana, about the murder of your sister. And you read for the audience one paragraph that you must have translated into English, a very linear and straightforward and factual paragraph about the, the situation of her death. And then you said that that paragraph took you 30 years to be able to write and that you had been struck speechless up until then. When you said that, I thought back to what I mentioned about all these meaning-making characters in your stories that are confronted with the failure of being able to make meaning. And I wondered if you felt a connection between your speechlessness and the way these stories are constructed with these um, characters that have a certain vocation, that is being, um, I, I don't uh, sabotaged in a sense by the the world that by the world in, in which they're operating. This is this is just great. Thank you so much for that reading and for uh, making those connections. Um, I think you have summarized uh, um, some of the the operations central to to most of my work. Definitely, there is. Um, these, these uh, meaning makers are in a way like linguistic shifters, right? They, they are continuously moving, transforming themselves and adapting or opposing circumstances that are uh, apparently beyond their control. And, and that tension is, is central to, to the story as such. It's the reason why the story exists. Otherwise it wouldn't make sense. Uh, I'm reminded of what um, Ricardo Piglia said in, in, in that little book, Formas Breves, without paradox, we don't have a story. There is no need to tell a story. 
with a paradox, right? So that um, that contradiction at the heart of human experience, in a way, is what is propelling uh, the the storytelling as such. And I think in, in my case, there are two two issues equally relevant. On the one hand, um, yeah, the speechlessness or or the kind the frozen states to which um, violence forces very often. Um, Adriana Cavarero said, and I think in a very convincing way, that the task of horror precisely is to is to to freeze us, to paralyze us, to to prevent us from having any kind of reaction, and uh, and uh, which is what power wants, obviously. Um, and in a way, I I see writing as a as a possibility of of going through that stage and finally put. Um, uh, that experience, which could be uh, the experience of trauma uh, in words, identifying and containing the shapelessness that is violence uh, in it, at its core, right? And, and so that, that tension is, is fundamental. At the same time, on the other extreme, but very closely linked, I think, is the issue of the naturalization of violence. Is on the one hand, lack of language and on the other hand the surplus of language you know the the just the the way in which many of these um uh hierarchies are accepted as such without questioning them or or violence as such as, as just another component of, of everyday life so I think writing uh, or these these um, you know, these meaning makers, these characters that are continuously trying to to if not capturing at least to go through this experience to approach them in a way that that are not overwhelming, I think um, these meaning makers that's what they are trying to do. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis the shapelessness that is violence or the, the fossilization at the same time, this petrous nature of violence, both of them are, uh, are, are, are on these extremes of, of experience. And, and I do believe that, that writing is a way of, of, of going through them, um, not necessarily uh, in order to solve um, um, a puzzle, you know, or to fix a problem, but just to make to make the approach bearable, I suppose that's that's uh, that's as far as I would like to to get in in that in that kind of um, um, as an explanation of my own experience as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why uh, the four of the issues that you mentioned are so important: the presence of mediation in all these stories. We we have to know as readers what uh, how how knowledge is being built and what are the different stages that, that language has to go through in order for us to be able to receive that. And so the story is about that. So regardless of the topic, regardless of, of the plot, the story is about how we get to, to even approach the, that experience that belong, that always belongs to other, right? And so no first languages, all languages are invented languages in, in a way are, are invent is, is comes as a result, language comes as a result of the specific conversations. Um, and um, I, I've been um, working a lot with uh, literal meaning. Uh, it, 
there is a, a short story. I, I don't think that one made it into this, this book um, about um, a woman that uh, gave her hand metaphorically as in marriage, but the man was asking for her hand literally as in maiming. And, uh, and, and so looking for those ways in which literal meaning emphasizes, emphasizes something that is uh, dangerous and, and uh, uh, lurking uh, our relationships, I think has been important as well. And uh, when I say that, that a knowing is relevant is, is precisely because what we are usually facing is either that utter lack of language or that excess of language and um, just opening new paths through that experience and, and looking at the world anew, just knowing what we've been uh, trained to look at and to perceive. Uh, uh, I think that's something that, that has been very uh, glorious in fact when, as a reader for me. So that's what, what literature has given me as a reader. And I would love to think that some of that might be what readers find also in my books, if I'm lucky. Uh, it's interesting to hear you speak about unknowing being important still, because the way you phrased it in the intro was that for your first book, unknowing was what you thought writing was for, which seemed to me to have a subtext that maybe that wasn't what writing was for, for you anymore. But in your essays in, in grieving, when speaking about mourning, you say that by losing the other, you not only mourn the loss, but become inscrutable to yourself. And that vulnerability and unknowing are the foundations from which to rethink a theory of collective power and responsibility. So I, I do see you in your nonfiction weaving unknowing into a, um, almost into a political theory or a political position. I, I, that's important to me, definitely. Uh, I think interrogating what we understand or what we don't understand about our world is precisely what we are, what I'm trying to do when, 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 uh, when dealing with language. So posing a question, a question that is strong enough or, or at least um, enigmatic enough to attract someone else's attention, I think that's, um, that's, uh, that's something that, that, that we do together. And as, and as such, my, my gain um, relevance for our daily life. And again, I'm referring to also to my own experience as a, as a young reader uh, as a as a voracious reader, always as someone whose life has been transformed many ways uh, by by what I, I I get the chance to approach through books and through language. So, specifically in the case of of, uh, of grieving of this book, I think I was uh, I was trying to just to think through a very complicated, the most violent years in recent Mexican history. Uh, I was trying to make sense together with, with others about what, what was our daily life like? What could we do? Um, the experience of pain was so widespread and, uh, and the lack of language, the, 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 the power of horror um, was very much uh, established in our midst. So interrogating language and trying to think through those interrogations, I, I think that's what, what kept me at least, uh, uh, not only alive, but willing to, to continue probing in, in what, what, was, what was our reality like? What could we do together? So there is, um, 
Uh, I, I've been reading recently this, this, um, the, the works by um, Christina Sharp in, in The Waking of Blackness mm -hmm. and Being. And I, I just, that book. yeah, it's, it's a marvelous uh, book. And uh, that relationship that she makes between wake, you know, the, 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 the different levels, meanings of, of the word. Uh, also related to, to grieving, to el duelo, no, in, in Spanish, and um, and the way in which pain allows us to 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 bring back with great force the sources of misfortune and tragedy, and therefore gives us uh, the critical capacity to to confront a new a situation, but always with this within the solidarities built with others, not that embrace. I think that's that's so relevant, and I'm. I'm continuously thinking about how grieving allows us to do that and asks us, forces us, at least myself, to, to, to connect. We cannot grieve in singular, as I said in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we do this. This is, a, this is like writing, something that we do in plural. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought, you brought up a couple times horror. I, I really like your exploration of what you call horrorism in grieving, where you contrast terror, which is something one experiences with fear and attempts to escape, versus horror, which goes beyond fear, which renders one speechless, immobile, um, uh, without agency, mouth hanging open, um, and something that you call the extreme spectacle of power. Um, and your book, Grieving, opens with two tortured bodies hanging from a bridge. And all of that made me, with regards to questions of language, it, the question of horrorism related to speech made me think of my conversation with uh, the Palestinian writer, uh, Adania Shibli. Um, and she talks about the inarticulate or stuttering speech of her character under occupation, a, a character who doesn't have a sophisticated political analysis of her own situation where she's often blaming herself for her inability to orient herself or navigate well what is otherwise a, a seamless, seamless, smooth, articulate narrative of the state. Um, that a, a, a narrative that has erased her previous reality. Um, when, when you ask in grieving, what can we do in the face of horrorism when speechlessness and social paralysis prevail, I, I wonder if this question is one that you feel animates your short stories as well. Yeah, just as you as you mentioned earlier, the relationship between Nadia me verá llorar, no one will see me cry, and La Castañeda, the, the more academic book, as as uh, as twin sister and brother. Brother, I think grieving is being a, a twin for several twin brother and sister at the same time, a twin person uh, for, for, uh, for the short stories. I think I work like that. I work in, in uh, following at least two different paths. One of them, uh, I'm, I'm trying to create arguments. I'm trying to um, um, write in a mode that allows me to, to approach a specific, very concrete, contextual situations that, that I'm going through. But at the same time, um, um, I'm looking for uh, these other aspects that are more related to form, that, that pathway of uh, uh, an exploration, a more conscious exploration of form, I would say. And, and the elements of fiction, character, and you know, dialogues, and all that. 
plot, our narrative arcs and all that kind of thing, right? <laughs> but, uh, but I think there, there are layers of, um, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of the same question, of the same, of the same kind of curiosity or the same um, uh, impulse for survival. Uh, so um, as, as the stories become more and more, um, uh, more fantastic, as, as I explore more issues in, in the genre of the fantastic, uh, I think my, the, the essays become more um, clearly connected to issues that, that deal with agency and politics. Uh, and so it, it is like the two sides of the same coin um, and with and trying to go through those experiences with different tools and um, um, and arriving certainly to 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 different uh, uh, points to different places. I want to take these questions into how you portray selfhood and identity of your characters in in your new and selected. You often have said that we never write alone, and I think you've even said it here today, that we're always writing with others, that we're indebted to others. Um, you've also said that your work with your translator, Sarah Booker, has affected and changed the way that you write when you're quote-unquote alone now. And you've also said today and elsewhere that similarly, it's impossible to grieve in the first-person singular, that we're always grieving for someone and with someone and that grieving connects us in ways that are subtly and candidly material. So thinking of this, I wonder about the question of naming in your fiction, uh, the number of characters who assume names that are mistakenly given to them, yeah. who are wrongly named, who are nameless or, or are simply called names like stranger. Mm-hmm. One woman who calls herself Xi'an after she's mistakenly called this in one story. In another story, this this woman who's assumed a mistaken name as her own gives this gives a false name to another woman, s- saying that truth is not what is important. Complicity is. But I wonder about these names and also about namelessness things that seem to do more concealing than revealing and whether they somehow relate to your notions around writing and grieving as being collective. If somehow these are ways to destabilize the notion of a delimited border of the individual. If when you say in grieving, quote, in the beginning there was the we, we being the most intimate and also most political form of accessing one's subjectivity, if perhaps the, the, the failed naming is part of this subjective we, or, or maybe all of this, these curiosities or, or ways in which you're engaging with naming is about something entirely else. But I would love to hear about this repeated um, desire of you to destabilize the names of the characters. Yeah. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about names and thinking about pronouns, and all of them have to do with the linguistic uh, elements that we use to, to delineate identity, right? And uh, since I refuse to, I'm, I'm always very suspicious of uh, stable ideas or self-contained ideas of identity 
uh, I think my handling of names and my handling of pronouns, specifically in, in all these stories, uh, uh, has to be problematic. So, um, so it, it, is, it is a major issue. It is not a minor issue, I want to say. So, yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, we've been named so often. We are given names. We are given uh, uh, ways of knowing ourselves. We are, ways, we are given specific prescribed access to ourselves. That's what power does in, in many ways. So renaming, finding alternative names, names that are grown um, out of complicity instead of, uh, of, uh, uh, of um, I don't know, uh, hierarchy. Right or hierarchy-making structures. Uh, I think I, I think about that when I'm when I'm naming my characters, and I, and I realize one of the things that I realize uh, as I was going back to these early stories is that something that I've, I've been doing for a long time. Uh, so I thought that it was some recent um, concern of mine, result as a result of some theoretical readings. But I realized that it, it was right there at the very beginning. I would say that that's one of the uh, instigators of writing, just to think of why is, why is someone naming me? Why uh, why should I respond to these characteristics? Woman, uh, young, uh, Mexican, uh, whatever you know. Why am I giving all these uh, these ways of knowing myself? And I, if if I want to explore life in a critical way, I should be, I should start by by that, but by the name. And so yes. Uh, in the in those early stories, women are usually referred to in the wrong name, but then they 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 appropriate that wrong that wrongness. They make that wrongness wrongness their own, and therefore they are transforming the way in which they are seen. They see themselves and and they act upon the world as well. And and the same goes for for the pronouns. Uh, I I've been moving carefully. You know, from the he and she and uh, 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 the we and the they now, uh, because all of them um, bring promise and bring danger as well. So I, I try to be uh, very careful about my handling of these elements in the story. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I spend much of my time, especially when, when dealing with short stories about, uh, this, is, this is what these short stories are for, I think. These are, uh, the scope of the short story allows me to, to deal with these issues that it could be very com complicated to do that in a novel, in a, in a longer work in any case, without changing the story and without really having to start anew and, all those things, right? But in the in the more restricted context of the short story, I think that's that's what I do, just to go through those specific questions. And one of them is definitely uh, the the power of naming, um, the power of new names, of names that we give to ourselves and to others, the names that we um, appropriate and we make our own as we continue living and and the pronouns that that, that we use in, in order to to become actors in, in our stories mm -hmm. many of my my favorite stories in this selected are those in your third collection la frontera mas distante which often engage with questions through an anthropologic or ethnographic lens while also interrogating 
that lens, I think. I'd love to I'd love to spend some time with the story called Autoethnography of the Other. It's narrated by an anthropologist or ethnographer and starts with the lines the man never revealed his name perhaps he didn't know it or perhaps he had decided to hide it and later we learn that this studied man calls himself you and calls our narrator anthropologist i and that the anthropologist has in secret hiding this from her colleagues taken the studied man into her house and broken all the professional rules of, of propriety and objectivity. But the result of her well-meaningness is, are, is disastrous, ultimately. And I was, I was hoping you could, you could speak to this story and its animating questions for us. Many of the stories of this collection are, to my mind, pieces of speculative fiction. Uh, uh, even though um, they are not placed in a, specifically in the future, uh, they make references, references, oblique references in any case to, to, a, to a time that is not quite here yet. Uh, and so they move, I think, freely from the very origins of, um, of humanity to a future that might, might be a hundred or two hundred years away from 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 us right now. So in in this story, as in other stories in this in this collection, there are societies inhabited by women only, and and this is one of them. And uh, I I've been at that point I was spending some time thinking about what would happen, what what would that entail. Uh, uh, what kind of power relationships will come out as a result of, of, of these connections of bodies and desire and, and, uh, and futures, fugitivity as well, right? So um, I, I've used, in, in this story, I used um, uh, a, a very basic uh, uh, lineal history of anthropology. I, in fact, was attending a, um, a workshop by anthropologist Ruth Behar at that point. And, uh, and I was thinking, wow, this is just so, so interesting. These different stages that might allow us to, to have a sense of what anthropology has done in recent times. But at the same time, this, this might, uh, that's what I thought, this, this is going to help me to be able to trace the different stages in a relationship. And in that case, it was an heterosexual relationship uh, within a context of uh, of an all uh, women society, and the kind of um, challenges that 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 that, uh, that that relationship posed to the the new hierarchies, uh, and and the kind of menace that these, which is now the normative um, uh, hegemonic type of relationship, what would happen if, if we could um, invert. The, those conditions, right? So that that was the question for me, and uh, and as usual, that that got uh, connected to, to issues of uh, of language and, and knowing and how this this person, this uh, this man, this nameless man, this stranger, el extraño, el salvaje, you know, the, the person who is not, they were not going to be able to capture what what kind of um, um, uh, discomfort and what kind of disorder. It is going to bring into the society. So that that's uh, that's mostly uh, the question, and obviously the the uh, the result is is 
is not going to be pleasant in, at the end of the story, but I shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> I, I, I'm tempted to talk about it because I would guess, I guess I would say that the, the traumatic moment comes around this studied man being brought to the movies and seeing um, representation of self separate from self, this question of this way he names himself you mm-hmm. um, versus I, seeing the film is something that really um, is a fall from Eden in a way for him, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. And you have this refrain in the book, taxidermic ethnography expresses the desire of some scholars to make what is dead seem alive. Cinema, colonialism, and anthropology were born at the same time. We get this line many times, and um, I just wondered if you could talk about it a little bit, about the significance of these three things coming or emerging together um, for you and the story. Yeah, and and there are two moments, I think, in the story that are the, the, the dramatic note right here one has to do with representation and, and the danger of, of, of representation what it does to us and i think that's very much related to, to what i was mentioning earlier about naming with the names that we are given or imposed upon us um and and that's the the, the weight of representation and i think that fall from eden that you're referring to when the character looks at the at the movies that's precisely it so whereas uh, they they've been living these two uh, these two characters, they've been living away from the knowledge of others, kind of in a, in a using the, the, the small apartment as a, as a hideout. Uh, once they are out, once they have to become something knowable, uh, um, something to be known out there, uh, the situation drastically changes. And the other moment, I think, is um, when... Uh, uh, in order for him to go out, he 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 dresses as a woman. He uses lipstick, right? So so he has to undergo that gender transformation as well. So those two elements uh, become uh, the this as I've said the dramatic knot of the story, and they both have to do with the weight of representation, the 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 jail, the prison that representation very often. Uh, allows and invites, in fact, and that's one of my my problems with with identity. So one one uh, one that is uh, imposed upon you, there is very little room to wiggle, right? Uh, there is a, a, there is very little room to experiment and to and and to to be able to host your many mutations and possibilities and potency, right? And uh, and. And so in, in emphasizing specifically that danger, that weight of representation through cinema or through naming, I think uh, the writing is trying to, 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 to bring out this, this critically, at least by opposition in any case, these other possibilities. Well, one real person that gets mentioned in the story as you go through the different eras of anthropology is Ishi the um, mm-hmm. so-called last Yahi Indian, who at the at the turn of the century, when uh, his tribe had been decimated, 
he lived in the Anthropology Museum of the University of California, San Francisco. He was employed there as a janitor, but he also entertained guests as a, as a living museum installation and participated in the recording of Yahi myths and songs, which became part of an early ethnographic film. And shortly after describing this, we get the line, taxidermic ethnography expresses the desire of some scholars to make what is dead seem alive. Um, one of the main anthropologists involved at that time, who I think you might mention by name, but you don't go into it, is Alfred Krober. And I bring this up because he's Ursula Le Guin's father, and he's also one of the most well-known anthropologists at the at the time of the birth of this field as an academic discipline. And for a totally different conversation for the show, I was watching a lecture of Fred Moten called Transubstantiation and Co-Substantiality mm -hmm. that looks at the work of an anthropologist that he really admires, a uh, contemporary anthropologist, um, Elizabeth Pavanelli, oh, yeah. uh, who works with Aboriginal Australians. She has a book called Economies of Abandonment, and that book uses Le Guin's story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, and Charles Burnett's canonical work of avant-garde filmmaking, The Killer of Sheep, as frames to address questions of late liberalism within the Aboriginal community, where Le Guin's story, which is about a utopian society where everyone's good life is substantively good, good in, in all the tangible ways uh, of well-being, um, but that that real and tangible well-being depends upon the continued suffering of a child in a broom closet. I don't want to read too much into the fact that she chose a broom closet rather than a dungeon or a basement, but it's interesting to me that she worked as a janitor and that this child is in a broom closet. Mm. But, what, mm -hmm. but, but, but what Pavanelli finds powerful in Le Guin's story as a critique of late liberalism is that she makes the body of this child co-substantial with that of the community. There's no way to free the child without diminishing the benefits one has of good health, secure living, etc., that any solution other than enjoying your goodness and coming to terms with the fact that it comes from the ongoing suffering of another, the only other solution would be to acknowledge the child's suffering as your own suffering and to take some of that on to lessen it for her. I don't know if this is a question, but I think about this with regards to that story and all, and several of the other stories in this in this collection within your selected. And I just wondered if you had any further thoughts about this question of co-substantiality, um, which feels connected to me to you searching for um, a subjective we, perhaps. It's, it's a very complex question and you, you put it beautifully right there. Um, I'm reminded, for example, in Nadie uh, No One Will See Me Cry, one, uh, the main character, uh, which, uh, which is based on, on, uh, on, uh, on the file of an actual inmate that was, 
that's the, the wording of the time, a patient, we would say now, an inmate of the insular asylum in early 20th century Mexico. One of the, the issues that, that was very prominent in, in the file was how tired she was of being seen. Uh, and it, it was not said in this in this specific way, but that's something that I that I gathered from um, from reading the documents. And uh, when I was reading the story of Ishi, and and that that was kind of like the sub subtext of this of of, um, of the whole of, of the whole story of the of the whole ethnography with other, uh, I kept that that in mind. Uh, the issue of the museum. The, the issue of the gaze that is being imposed upon certain ways of, of um, structuring uh, and representing again the world and, uh, and what real life brings to bear, right? The activity of this person working as a janitor right there in the same place. So um, bringing all those things together in a way that might allow some, some, um, some questioning, right? Some, some alternative. Uh, some other possibility. I think that's that's what I see myself doing. And in order to do that, uh, this whole notion of who is doing what to whom, it's is absolutely central. We don't know exactly because of all these many mediations that take place in the way in which we approach the world and live through that. And specifically for us as readers, right? Getting to, to walk into a story as such. So what I can say, David, about that is that that is what occupies my mind. That's what I'm trying to, to go through. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm doing it in this layered, multi-layered way, looking at stories that, that are out there, that are known, that are e even famous, that are somehow canonical in many ways. And they could be the stories like Ishii, or they could be uh, novels and entire works like Amparo Davila's in uh, in the Iliad Crest. There, there, there is always this interconnection and this inner structural dialogue within which the story as such develops. And the reason why, in fact, let's say the story comes into be into being in the first place. Mm. And um, I haven't used the word co-substantiality, but I've read Povinelli with with great attention. I think what he she has to say about uh, the different dramas, as, as she calls that in uh, geontologies. Uh, that's, that's something that has been very much in my mind in my, in my more um, uh, recent work. I've been working with, with this specific book, the geontologist book in my classes, and, uh, and it has allowed me to reread entire works by Mexican authors in relation to the desert. And um, in my own experience writing out of a biography of Cotton was very much permeated by, by her ideas. I want to return to co-substantiality eventually in regard in regards to the ecological themes in your work yeah but yeah, I, yeah. but maybe depart from it for now or take a long route back to it and return to some some fiction specific questions particularly short story form questions um because you you speak about something that's intriguing in your introduction you you've mentioned already ricardo piglia and you quote him Doubleness is very important for him as as a writer. Um, yeah. He's had an alter ego since it, since he was a teenager. That f goes through his entire work, Emilio Renzi. Um, 
So his own autobiography is the fictional diaries of Emilio Renzi. Um, but Piglia says in your, in your introduction, a short story always tells two stories. A visible story hides a secret tale. And you add, the short story is the name we have chosen to describe the production of the cultural and social space in which something hidden becomes visible and therefore shared, but still as a secret. And you go farther to say Piglia's statement helped you revise and rearrange the stories. But but tell us about the notion of a story always telling two stories. Um, why that's important. Why you would choose to open your introduction of your body of work to date in fiction, in short fiction, with this uh, quote of Piglia's. It was important to me to uh, connect back to some Latin American tradition first. And um, uh, I admire Piglia's work, but I could have used uh, some, some other authors as well. I mean, from, uh, from uh, uh, US writers or European traditions, but I, I intently wanted to, to make that connection. I, the notion of the, of the two stories, of the subterranean story and the, the story that we are actually writing, to me is relevant because it pays attention to the issue of, um, of form uh, and, and, and calls attention as well to, to the secret that we share. So um, there is this other Argentinian author whose name, of course, is going to escape me right now, Eduardo Gruner, Eduardo Gruner, that's his name. In this, in this book, uh, El Fin de las Pequeñas Historias, the, the end of, um, of the little histories, of small histories. Um, he speaks there about poetry as, uh, as a way in which we found to share something without actually capturing it, right? To share an experience as, as, as a secret and as an enigma. That to me is, is central in the, in the making of the short story. That there is, there is a connection that I'm, I'm trying to create with, with readers, but that is not based on explicitness and, and um, in a resolution, but rather in the possibility of sharing a moment uh, of uh, disorientation, a moment of uh, perhaps a failed meaning making as we were speaking earlier, but the fact that we've gone through that together, that's what makes the story to me valuable. The fact of, uh, of uh, convoking that, that energy and that, that potentiality, that's, that's what's relevant. And I think Pilia does a good job of, in a very efficient way of uh, pointing, um, pointing that specific um, uh, uh, strength of, of, of the short story. Although I, I, I'd say, in, in, to be honest, I think that that's not only uh, something that is intrinsic to short stories. I, I would say that that's something that writing in general, uh, if lucky, can do. Well, I, it might be a stretch to connect these two things, but when I'm thinking about this notion of, when I'm thinking about this notion about a story always telling two stories, or perhaps writing always telling two stories, I also think about some of the ideas you explore in The Restless Dead, necro-writing and disappropriation. So I, I was just listening to the poet Alice Oswald's latest Oxford lecture. It's called Lament for the Earth. 
And she relates a conversation she had with an old folk singer, an old folk singer who said that the old man who taught him to sing said that when you sing a song correctly with your ear to tradition, then the dead will show up and sing with you. And I think of your quoting of John Berger in The Restless Dead also. The quote goes, To see the dead as the individuals they once were tends to obscure their nature. Try to consider the living as we might assume the dead to do, collectively. The living reduce the dead to those who have lived, yet the dead already include the living in their own great collective. This is so chillingly brilliant to me and also makes me think of Juan Rulfo, who you engage with in this collection and elsewhere. Um, and the, and your notion, which you, you actually spoke about on, on a Juan Rulfo panel that couldn't be called a Juan Rulfo panel because his family had trademarked his name. But (laughs) in this panel, um, secretly about him that, um, your work doesn't go back into the past, but pulls the the past forward um, into the lived contemporary moment. So in a way, making the present a haunted space or uh, a haunted dream space. But I wondered if you see a connection, say, between this notion of the double story, Piglia's notion of the double story, uh, the visible and the secret one, and and this other notion of necro writing. There, there is definitely uh, there is definitely a connection there. I've been working more recently with um, very closely with the notion of uh, of sediment and the sedimentation as a, as a, as a mode of writing as such. Of course, this is very much connected to to basic teachings of geology. Uh, you know, the present always containing the past, uh, and uh, the task of the of the geologist kind of like lifting. Uh, these different sediments of experience until you find uh, with this notion, of course, of of big time. So these three elements have played um, a a major role in my most most recent work. And uh, um, in order to do so, I think it would be very difficult to do so if I didn't have a a layered uh, notion of, uh, of the story, of the short story and writing in general as this, as this, um, as this two-story combo or two-story operation. Uh, so, in many ways, that that which is without words, or that which is with many words, the two extremes that we were talking about at the beginning, uh, conform this haunted present. And my task as a writer, it's if if I want to go through that. Is, is precisely that the critical operation linked to the desedimentation. Mm-hmm. So in a way is that the, the, I'm talking about the experience, the lived experience on the one hand, but also the writing experience as a material element, as a material practice as such. And so two of them, I think, collide, that they're converged, that they're, and, and all of that has to do with our death the death that, that are with us, not in a metaphorical way, but in a very material way, convoking us, invoking us, inviting us to, to be aware of their, of their presence, which is to be aware of these many uh, sediments 
that are encompassed in our present time. Mm-hmm. To be fully present is to be fully in that in that deep time, and um, and and I think writing has uh, some of the some of the the, the, the tools that, that we use when we write um, are. Are showing us the way. It's a way of really intersecting, articulating that possibility. One thing I was really taken by in your book, *The Restless Dead*, um, was the notion of disappropriation. And then, when when you're speaking about when you're speaking now about the tools of writing, you go into detail around writing practices. Um, speaking of horrorism, you say that when horrorism leads not just to speechlessness and social paralysis, but ultimately to a place where resistance and struggle are suffocated as soon as they emerge, um, that certain community-based writing practices become that much more relevant and vital. And and you name them, and I really love this part, um, writing practices that don't hide their debt to others. And being more specific, you speak of the importance of processes that question the legitimacy and or political usefulness of notions of authorship that don't involve community connections. The importance of the importance of processes that emphasize the material conditions of production that either allow writing to exist or don't allow writing to exist in the first place. And processes that underline the roles not only of authors, but of readers and their communities in the production and sharing of writing materials. You say these practices, these writing practices, usher in the disappropriation of materials with the goal being of returning all writing to its plural origin. I was hoping you could speak more into this notion of disappropriation, something that you've also called the poetics, a poetics that challenges the concept and practice of property and challenges the concept and practice of propriety. Um, tell us, tell us if this plays a role in your fiction. Um, but even if it doesn't, I would just love. I think writers would love to hear about disappropriation of materials. This was part of a, of a very charged and lar- larger com- uh, conversation that was taking place in the United States during the early twenty first century. Uh, and, and that um, as I was uh, moving back and forth with, between Oaxaca and California, uh, it's a conversation that I, that I was um, um, developing in Oaxaca uh, with concerns that somehow became very vivid as, uh, as, I, uh, as I became part of a writing community in, in Southern California. So it's, it's a transnational uh, type of uh, interaction in, uh, in a shared concern about who has a right to, to, to write, who has the right to write stories, right? And um, what, um, what do we do with materials that are never our own? Uh, w- that passage that goes from experience into language, from uh, so-called real life into the story that we're trying to tell, that passage is full of ethical uh, uh, concerns. And so the disappropriation part of, of, uh, of this uh, conversation had to do precisely with addressing those ethical concerns. If, uh, if we as a writer, if we as, as, as writers are continuously writing the story of others, and that's what we do, and I'm convinced that that's what we do, even if we write the most intimate side of ourselves, 
uh, once we are we touch language, we are uh, in connection with others, and so to be writer in my in my to my mind is not is not only is not to write stories or to publish stories is to actually contest and interrogate that transition, that mediation that goes from experience into language. So. Um, some of the answers, some uh, part of that conversation, a very charged and, and, uh, and a very important conversation that I was part of uh, at that time was very much um, a thought uh, uh, entertained within the, the limits of identity, right? So you, you approach certain stories because your identity was this or that. But that came, um, that was very problematic for someone who, who has been thinking about the weight of representation, right? About the imposition created by names and specific hierarchies and narratives in, in that sense. So I had to move away from uh, the straitjacket, so to speak, of identity and find some other ways to address those ethical concerns from a, a slightly different angle. And so in... Uh, as a result of these many conversations, uh, uh, I think uh, the, the, this concept of disappropriation, uh, I started to use it more and more, and and, uh, and it grew very slowly, right? So on the one hand, uh, it was important not to appropriate the stories of others, the value of others, the work of others, right? But to disappropriate, to disappropriate that in a way as a code word to, to say, to make that visible, to make that even palpable, that I, I wanted my work to be able to show that what I was doing was not the result of some um, uh, uh, individuality, the self-contained individuality, but part of a larger dialogue that, that transverse me, that, 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 uh, that went through me, but that didn't define me at the same time. So, um, I think central to that notion is is uh, is what I uh, what I was saying earlier the, the whole notion the whole practice of research. So we don't know things. We we are not these stories are not intrinsic to what we are. Uh, earlier you mentioned um, that I, uh, I I I spoke of that very objective paragraph. Uh, describing my latest book about my sister's femicide and that it had taken me 30 years to write such a seemingly uh, smooth paragraph, right? Well, those 30 years, I think, have been years of, of uh, research understood in the most um, ample, most flexible of senses, right? And the same goes for autobiography of Cotton. Uh, I can't summarize the plot right now, and I can tell you it's a story you know, I, I'm exploring the, the migrant experiences of my paternal grandparents who walked all the way from San Luis Potosí, uh, from indigenous communities into the mining communities, coal mining communities of the north to finally settle themselves in the cotton fields along the Mexico-US border. And said in that way, it would seem that that's, that's a story that I grew up with, that is somehow uh, intrinsic to my sense of being which is not the case, right? So in order to write that book and to write about the migrant story also of my maternal grandparents who lived all their lives in the United States and, and were expelled in the 1930s uh, right after the, the crash of, the, of, the, of 1929, right? 
finding, uh, uh, um, going back to a country that they hardly knew and finally establishing themselves also on those cotton fields along the Tamaulipas, Texas borders. It could seem that I knew the story all along. And, and again, that's not the case. So research is what allowed me to get close to those materials up to certain point. So I, 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 I did the archival research. I went to these places. I did field research. I, I interviewed people. Uh, I tried um, very seriously to be as close as I could to all these materials. And then after all that work is done, then I have those 300 pages in this book. And I can say, this is a story of my grandparents. And this is a story told uh, in such a way that fiction is the host uh, uh, because I didn't have enough because I could have been doing research forever, but I, I will never have enough mm. and we will mm. never have enough, right? And so just creating those connections and, um, and um, putting, including those materials in the book as, uh, as part of its own making, I think that's another form of disappropriation, honoring the experience of others as others, uh, honoring uh, their own modes of knowing and being, honoring the the work that it entails, just to to be able to to go to an archive, right? To find these these documents. Uh, I think all, all that all that which I'm referring to as as labor, it's uh, it's it's central also to the notion of disappropriation. So I'm trying, of course, to move away to these romantic notions of inspiration of uh, this lonely, gifted individual who, against all odds, will tell this story that she knows so well from the very beginning. I mean, all, all that, that notion that we so often associate with the word memoir, right? So uh, this would be a way of interrogating both the experience and the format that we've used to, to deploy these experiences and to, to make this experience shareable with others. So um, disappropriation becomes in that sense uh, an, uh, a mode of approaching the materials, but also a way of, uh, uh, in terms of, of the forum is, is, is very complicated um, to see how, let, let me rephrase that. Academics have an answer for this. They quote the materials and there are strict rules about documentation and uh, footnoting and MLA formats or APA or Chicago style and those things. In the creative writing field, when we have, when we want to refer to, to these materials, we want to include these materials. So that's not only uh, an issue of, um, of um, acknowledging uh, the work of others, but also becomes an aesthetic issue. How, what kind of aesthetic decisions will I be making here to share with my readers that this is part of a larger process and a larger conversations in which the work of others, the text of others, the writing of others is, is, is fundamental, is essential, is inescapable. That's, that's something that I was able to answer with, um, to me, I mean, with the term um, uh, disappropriation, obviously the question remains uh, open for every single project and uh, every single project will eventually 
at least that I'm talking about my own practice here, will eventually find its own specific tone and form and, and, and mode of being in the world. That's to me, that's a task of writing. It's less a story that I'm telling and more uh, a way of creating that, that material spacing with these issues will have to be addressed in the company of others, both uh, as, as actors in the story, as elements of the storytelling, uh, and, and obviously as readers into this larger community of, uh, of sense making. Yeah. I love this idea that no matter what we're writing about others and with others, maybe the best example of it literally in your fiction is when you have, you have Amparo Davila and Alejandra Pizarnik in, in, in your work, their words in your work, them as figures in your, in, in your fictions. Um, Juan Rulfo uh, also, but, but staying, staying with these, this is a great segue to talk about the non-human in, in your work too, mm -hmm. uh, as another other um, that often gets erased or not acknowledged as part of the, um, the collaborative uh, nature of writing. Um, so like staying with this notion of two stories within a story of, of Pavanelli and Moten and mm -hmm. Le Guin's notion of co-substantiality and your notion of disappropriation. But coming back to your fiction, um, a first step back towards your fiction, I, I want to spend a moment with your conversation with Donna Haraway, because much like you talk about both writing and grieving as non-solitary acts, when you two were talking she, she seemed to do a similar thing with, with love, um, demanding that love is ultimately collective and communal. Uh, um, and I wonder if this is a, I mean, I don't know if this is a misuse of your term disappropriation, disappropriation, but if she's doing a disappropriation of love, because she, she talked about the monarch butterfly, that if you really love this butterfly, if, as she does, if, if when this butterfly arrives to where you live, if she's to take this love seriously, it must extend beyond her own joy around the beauty of the butterfly to all the things that sustain the butterfly's existence. And then she went on to mention one of the principal activists in Michoacan, which is the place where monarch butterflies migrate to and congregate, who was trying to build connections between farmers and forest conservationists, who was engaging around the politics of water in the region and, um, and around the tourist industry, how this terribly important conservationist was murdered, and that for her to take her love of the butterfly seriously, if she was going to be worthy of loving the butterfly, her, her concern needed to extend to that, and also to the plants that need that the butterfly needs to feed to the farms and agribusinesses and the pesticides that they use on the land the land that has been taken by conquest and by slavery in what she calls a continuous material tracing of being. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase. Mm -hmm. And it feels like you do this with autobiography of cotton, which you could say is about, as you've already mentioned, the part of your family that gets pushed south to the cotton fields and the part of your family that moves north to the cotton fields. Um, both attracted perhaps in a way like Haraway's butterflies to a plant. Mm -hmm. um, and you could say that this story of your family is really the auto 
biography of a plant, as your title implies, and you in fact do say this. You say, it is a history of cotton as I think cotton would have written it. So this is my long way of asking you to talk about the non-human in your fiction, but I guess maybe most specifically or most commonly seen as a forest, a forest that seems to be telling a story somehow that we can't reduce to meaning. It's like a story of the forest is one that isn't, we're not able to translate it. It reminds me of Tarkovsky's zone and in stalker or Jeff Vandermeer's area X, the, these forces outside of language feel like they're, they are a character in some of your stories, many of your stories, um, shaping the stories, maybe writing the stories with you, even though we're not able to, to read them, but there's something about the energy of the forest in your stories that often is part of the mystification happening to your meaning making characters. That, that's again a wonderful question. I, I could uh, organize a whole syllabus, a semester based on that. This is so rich. Uh, let me let me try to start with the cotton first, and then uh, and then I'll get to to the forest. Even though in in my work the forest is first, and the forest has been um, there uh, very prominently in uh, in the tiger syndrome, of course, and. Uh, I was reminded of the place of the forest in a short story included in this in this collection, um, the Carpathian Mountain Women, and uh, uh, and and the way in which this this enchanted forest of of the fairy tales becomes uh, a, a tale of horrorism too, uh, and uh, uh, um, extractive economies and capitalism run amok in many ways. So yes, there, there is that connection that has been very important to me, uh, is to, to interrogate the, um, all these romantic notions attached to, to, to nature and, and, and nature in general, and specifically about the forest, and, uh, and try to, again, the sediment, all these economic, financial, cultural, uh, elements that constitute forest as such. So the, the well, but I said that I was going to be talking about that later, and now I'm talking about that right now. In <laughs> any case, let me see. I I set out to write uh, autobiography of cotton because I wanted. Uh, at the beginning, it was a it was a very long project. I wanted to do a history of my own family based on on the crops that have made them made these lives possible. For my grandparents, it was cotton. For my father, who is a, a researcher, um, uh, it was potatoes. That's the reason why we moved to central Mexico. And, uh, and so I wanted to, to find links between those two, between those two, between cotton and potatoes. And, uh, and of course, I wanted to listen to carefully to the language of, of both of, of cotton and potatoes. I don't speak Cotonese. I don't know what the <laughs> language of, of cotton as such, but cotton has been, the language of cotton has been translated uh, through different disciplines uh, and, and it's been made knowledgeable to us uh, through uh, labor registers, through bank uh, transactions, through the international market, 
the financial system, uh, the field of agronomy, uh, fertilize, the language of fertilizers, the language of soil, soil and soil caring. So there are all these many attempts that we've, uh, that we've used uh, as a space to be able to have, to be conversant. Uh, in cottonies to be able to develop these, uh, which is a, a one-sided and quite hierarchical uh, conversation with cotton. And I was very aware of, of, the, um, of the tremendously uh, 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 relevance of the connection between cotton and slavery in the history of the United States and how contrasting was the experience of cotton production on the border, uh, on the US-Mexico border and the sense of autonomy uh, that, that it created in these specific communities, at least for certain amounts of time, some 20, 30 years of, of great growth, economic and otherwise, right? So instead of just talking about the human history of, uh, of uh, this section of my family, of grandparents that I never knew, or I hardly knew, um, I, I wanted the language of cotton to be present. And so I had to resort to the translations that we've used to, to develop these uneven conversations. And uh, we go back to, our, to the beginning of our conversation. It's again a translation and it's again an, an, uh, an unfinished translation, right? It's a translation in which I'm, I'm including um, as much uh, information that I've been, I, I've been digging through all these different research modes. And it's a conversation that in many ways I'm inventing uh, um, an, an imagination that has resulted from the research and, and not otherwise, right? So um, I was in, 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 uh, in the terms used by, by Donna Haraway, I was taking very seriously that possibility, seriously the, the, the work that, uh, that a specific generation put into producing this crop and the relationship that emanated of that, of that connection and eventually the destruction that, that came as a result of all that, right? The, the, mm. the soil degradation and, and the work of, of the different plagues that ended these, uh, <clears throat> these which was a, a very successful economic financial story at least for some 20 or 30 years. So that, that was uh, my way of uh, bringing cotton into place. I didn't want, this is again, um, I didn't wanna, I wanted to interrogate the representations that weighed heavily on, on cotton as a crop. And I wanted to, to create a space in which that, I think it would be, uh, I can say in which cotton itself spoke, because as I've said, I don't speak that language, but in which the translations uh, that we've been able to gather uh, or to create of this language of the cotton of the of the language of cotton. Uh, so I wanted that to, to be completely present and to in fact guide all the structure of the book and um, in the responses, the reactions that uh, that members of my family had or developed vis-a-vis -vis the challenges of, of cotton and, uh, and the care that came with that. So that was what, one way of, uh, of um, joining this material tracing of being as, as, as you mentioned. And, and I think the, the relevance for me of all these, uh, of, of all these elements is, is just to, 
to be relentless about posing those small questions. Uh, uh, when we introduce objects in our stories, uh, very often we, we take all these objects as, as granted. We don't interrogate them. And, um, and here the lessons uh, from uh, George Craig are very useful about the infraordinary, you know, interrogating, bring, interrogating every single element of the story, interrogating our objects, interrogating our streets, interrogating our names, trying to see where they are coming from. Are there alternative ones? Can we rename things? What is the history of this spoon that I am taking, uh, you know, my soup with? What is it? So if we, if we devote all that time, if we, if we really take this, this storytelling seriously, we will have to spend much time with all these, with these small, the smallest of elements as much as, the, as we spend with the, with the larger arguments or the larger aspects of our stories. That was my intent with Cotton. Um, obviously, I could have written this book, uh, I could have spent all my life writing the Cotton story. You know, ants are artificial. We, we need to end some, somewhere. And because I believe of, of ending as an artificial um, um, contract, a convention, an artificial convention, that's the reason why it is rather easy for me to go back and say, we need to change that. I mean, this is, this is not how the story was meant to be. That's how the story could be at that point in time. But stories grow as, if we are lucky, stories grow and continue um, developing in, in ways that very often escape uh, our, our own imagination. And so going back to them, uh, um, approaching them uh, from the point of view of the translator, bringing them back to life, the sediment, all the, these elements that have uh, petrified in many ways uh, uh, their own structures. I mean, that's, that's part of what, of what I claim uh, writing has done for me as a reader. So that's something that, in a way, it comes natural when I when I go back and revise. When you when you talk about um, interrogating and finding alternatives, it it reminds me again of this notion of a double story with Piglia, but also thinking about like the few female journalists that go to the city of men in that story who end up hiding in the forest. You have lines like, "On the outskirts of order grows with great stubbornness another order." It isn't an alternative city exactly, but a series of anti-cities that scattered across the narrow borders, surviving constant motion. And then in your the story that you mentioned, Carpathian Mountain Woman, we get this repeated line over and over again, which again reminds me of this Epiglian notion of the story, every forest always has another forest inside of it. And I was hoping you, you could read just a short passage from that story if you have the book on hand. Why does someone grab a pair of notebooks, take a long trip on a dilapidated hulk of a bus, get off in a distant province, and then travel on the back of a donkey for days and days in order to reach, if they possibly can, the remotest spot imaginable? I don't know. Why does someone choose a forest? I can't answer that either. There is a green, of course the abundance of greens that are the color green, you have to learn how to see. There is a fresh air and the sky, this sky blue sky, the solitude of the sky. 
No one is ever more defenseless than when they know they are alone under the sky. The possibility of remaining silent for hours at a time, days at a time, months at a time. The possibility of forgetting how to write. The possibility of not speaking. There are the extended, callous, dry, brutal hands that can't take up tools to cut, plant, plow. There is the voice, deep. The echo, also deep. The possibility of saying, we have burned all the villages. We have burned all the villages and the people in them. We have adopted their customs and the way of dress. The laughter inside the church walls during the rites. The slow walking down the aisle, the shaking of hands, the endless bowing of heads. There is a crying of babies being born, a deep echo, another one. There is the beginning, the oldest forest, the forest inside the forest, that promise. Listen to this. There is the inescapable fact that we have burned all the villages and the people in them. You can't live in the forest without having a theory of the forest. During burials, when I joined the funeral procession and later, when I look inside the coffin at the dead person, person's face, it's impossible to avoid wondering if it's worth it, if all of this is worth it. The problem, as always, is the children and the old people. The problem is always the most vulnerable ones. The ones who one fine day abandon the joke and run as fast as they can among the trees looking for a little light. Sometimes it gets so dark under the trees and so cold. The problem is the ones who, who lose their minds. You stand there looking at the dark pathways and you wonder about the taste of liquor in the mouth of the man who shovels dirt over all that. The forest means somewhere beyond everything is in flames. There is a moth that flutters in the air. The blade of the tool has severed the leg. The snow is falling. The nature of snow is to fall. There was snow before. There will be snow afterward. The forest will survive all of that, all of these. In front of the falling house, the illuminated face, an idol. The nature of houses is to fall. The noise of the axe. Soon we will disappear. There is an urgent need to go to the tree. The amputated leg, the trail of blood on the snow, a pair of footprints. We've been listening to Christina R Rivera Garza read from New and Selected Stories from Dorothy Project. So bef before we end today, Christina, I, I wanted to spend at least a moment with the new stories that are only available in English that end the collection, many of which are much shorter, less beholden to narrative, more formally varied, um, and two of them which are doubled in a sense that are engaged with previous stories, Rothko's Sunrise and The Survivor of, of Pripyat. They don't feel like sequels. They feel like reanimations or re-envisionings. Re but talk to us about these, what you've discovered and what you're working through with these new um, stories which feel more highly experimental and um, which seem to foreground um, 
the mechanics or the uh, something of this of the mechanics of storytelling in a way or the scaffolding of storytelling in a way that maybe your earliest stories is trying to con- are trying to conceal yeah yeah you're right very right um i think i've used most of these very short stories as um as, as places to to f- to confront the specific formal challenges so some of these uh, some of these uh, stories at the end of, of this volume are related to or come directly from larger works, and I just uh, isolate some of them. I I needed to know, for example, in reincarnation, uh, which is a story told in very um, uh, on, on sentences that that appear to be disjointed. So I, I was trying to work against the notion of narration as the unfolding of meaning over time. This was the narration as the unfolding of uh, the problems of making meaning over time in many yeah. ways. So uh, I, I, I wanted this disjointedness of the sentences to, to allow me to work with that with that operation that we've been talking about all throughout this this, this conversation, but uh, it was a way of um, iterating that possibility in any case. Um, there were some other ones. Um, one, the Spi Unye Mat that deals with the with a, the last speaker of uh, of of a language of a dying language too. Um, there and and then at the end there are these two stories that you've mentioned appear at least in two versions, which doesn't mean that there are more versions that I decided not to publish here. So we go back to, to the topics that we've been um, uh, addressing throughout these conversations. So now that you put it in this way, so, so concisely out there, I can, I can clearly see how in the, in the last, I don't know, five years or so, I've been very actively engaging and in unfinishing my stories and in creating versions, new versions, alternative versions of whatever I've been, uh, I did in the past or are doing in the present. So uh, it has become a, a mode of, uh, of, uh, of working with, with my materials. I'm thinking of, um, of the way in which I worked with uh, El Invencible Verano de Liliana, which is the, the book that I just published uh, last year in Mexico. But in the making of the book, I was writing paragraphs, entire pages in Spanish, and then going immediately into English and trying to write a version, which was not necessarily a translation, but a version of what I just I, what I've written in Spanish, how would I do that in English? What kind of version, what kind of, uh, how would the story be affected by the fact that I was talking about these same issues with using the same materials, but with the mediation and the intervention of another language. So it was a very slow process, but essentially at, at its very core is this version making and, and it is the, the translation of the of the materials as such, so what we see at the end in the in the story about Rothko is a translation. It's, it goes from one form into the other, right? It's, one is a, a, a narrative, and the other one is a villanelle. And let's see how the villanelle, which is a form, is always 
preventing um, the conclusion, right? It's, it's keeping, uh, keeping the, the story in, an, in its unfinished state. Uh, so I, I wanted to see how that form, which we usually associate with poetry, does to narrative as such. And in fact, that's an exercise that I, I usually uh, use as a prompt in, with my students in intro mm. to fiction classes, is just to see how, we, how the, the um, genre as such, or specific forms, uh, meter forms, uh, how they, they, they um, interrogate narrative and, and, uh, and, and, and at times with, with posing very, very interesting questions to, to our plots and to our, our characters in general. So yeah, that's, uh, that, I, I guess that, that's what I've been doing. This, now that, that, that I'm talking with you, I realize that that's what I've been doing these last, I don't know, five, seven years. Yeah. Well, for our, for your and my un, unfinish, the way we're going to unfinish our conversation, I, I wanted to unfinish our conversation. I want to repeat the line from City of Man. On the outskirts of order grows with great stubbornness and other order. And it's in this other order, constantly in motion, where the female journalists are hiding from and within the City of Men. I wanted to end with the word stubbornness. If we go to an essay where you talk about stubbornness, um, we could consider this essay perhaps a conjoined twin to the story City of Men. Hmm. You say, I'm not an optimist. I'm stubborn. We don't need hope. We need tenacity. There is no contradiction between this constant urging taking to the streets and this entering into the process of writing. We're talking about the right side up and the inside out of the same process. So in, in this spirit, as our, our final uh, exchange before the unfinish, um, mm -hmm. what, are, what are you engaged with now? What, are, what, are, what is your work in, what are the animating things for you or unanswerable questions or um, what's driving you to the page or away from the page, books that have captured you or books that we can expect from you? Tell, project us into the future for a moment of Christina Rivera Garza. Thank you so much, David. It's so interesting that you chose these lines of the City of Man, which is a short story that I've been, I've been thinking a lot about. And, and, and in fact, I, 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 um, I rewrote that several times. And, and at one point it became a, a short novel. Perhaps it will be published, perhaps it won't, I don't know. But there were issues in that, in that short story. Most of them had to do with the point of view. That and that I wanted to to restructure. I think that it needed some engineering work uh, in that in that specific story. And when I went back to interrogate every single thing, it turned out that that the story needed more pages, and that so it became this this novel in the making right now. But I, that's not what I'm doing right now. So uh, when uh, when I wrote the autobiography of Cotton, my idea was to continue with the book of um, uh, on on potatoes. Is it, it, the 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 Solanum tuberosum diaries? That's how I called that project. And uh, I was trying to write that book when uh, the invisible invincible summer of Liliana Liliana's invisible summer just uh, couldn't. Uh, it was just constantly in my mind. 
And so I, I, I just interrupted the other book and I devoted my time to, to do the research and interviews and write the story. Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm tempted to, to go back to the original pathway and continue with the Tolanum Tuberosum Diaries. And I tried that, but for some reason, and I'm gonna go back again to, to the first question, instead of, of, uh, of writing um, in this disappropriative mode, uh, I, I began writing what, what might as, as well be called a, a piece of a spe a speculative fiction. And I don't know if I'm gonna continue with that. Uh, um, as I said, is is fiction, I go back to fiction, but, but with all the questions that have been nagging me for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So it's not gonna be fiction as I knew fiction before all these years, it's, it's something else. But at the same time, um, I've been thinking about the whole process of writing Liliana's Invincible Summer and um, the legal process, the, uh, the police work that has uh, uh, come as a result of writing the book. And uh, I might be tempted to write a, a, a second book related to that, to that process. I'm not so sure, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know that the writing remains in the field of, um, of, of the family uh, that is very much uh, uh, taking advantage of, uh, of archival materials, of uh, you know, interviews, field work, all, that, the, all the, the elements that I've been talking about uh, in regards to this appropriation. So it seems that there, are, there is this bifurcation. On the one hand, continuing with this nonfiction fiction type of work. And on the other hand, perhaps uh, going back and shake hands with fiction now uh, in its more speculative form. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's exciting either way. It is. It is. And, and perhaps yeah. I will end up doing both, right? So yeah. I just need time. I hope so. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending all of this time with me today, Christina. I am very sincere when I say thank you for your questions. They are magnificent. At time, I wish I could, uh, you know, I'm going to be thinking about those and I'm going to say, no, I have now a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and perhaps I'm going to be, I will, I will find myself calling you and saying, I'm going to, okay. I'm going to um, record a better answer, but no, that's <laughs> what I was able to do right now. But you are just uh, amazing. Thank you so much. Really. Thank you. Thank you so mm -hmm. much too. We were talking today to Christina Rivera Garza about her, new and selected stories from Dorothy Project. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. Today's bonus audio is a long-form conversation with Christina's translator, Sarah Booker, about everything from questions of authenticity and authorship to feminism and translation activism. This joins Christina's own contribution to the archive from 2019, 
of a reading of three parts of our long poem, Third World, and conversations with many fantastic translators from Emma Ramadan and Sophie Hughes to Megan McDowell. If you enjoyed today's conversation, help ensure the future of conversations just like this by joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters at patreon.com slash between the covers. Access to the bonus audio is just one potential benefit of doing so. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. Like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.